0: Welcome to Brand Blueprints, a podcast for individuals and brands that want to harness the power of story to be more memorable and impactful. My name is Malik Yarbo, and I'm a paid media specialist, and I'm interviewing authors, storytelling experts, and builders of brands to talk about their process, the lessons they have learned, and the formulas they use to engage and have an impact on their audience. This episode will cover how to build a million dollar plus e brand in less than two years with Benjamin Lau and Kusha Turabi, who both hold degrees from Stockholm School of Economics, worked at Facebook together, and founded the active wear e-com brands Nine Pine and Nothing Something. Some of the subjects we'll cover will be how to start a compelling e-commerce brand, how to stand out and be profitable as well as the future of e-commerce. We will cover this and much more. Hello, Ben and, Kusha And welcome to Brand Blueprints. I'm super excited to have both of you here. You guys are currently running both Nine Pine and Nothing Something. Tell me, how did you guys get started? And and tell me shortly uh, about your entrepreneurship journey?
1: Well, my first entrepreneurship journey, I started my first econ when I was about 19. I think I was 18 or 19. I was actually abroad with my family on this short family holiday. And I was going to the gym a lot. So I was using a protein shaker, a plastic protein shaker. And at the same time, my sister was in medical school. She was becoming a medical doctor. So she was bashing me for using plastic containers because they had some course about bisphenol A, bisphenol B, like hormone alike molecules that are released from plastic and apparently really bad for you. So uh, she said, you should get a, a steel protein shaker. Like you use your shaker three times a day, you get one that's made out of steel. And that really sparked the whole thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to get one out of steel. It sounds really cool. I'm down to spend my little student grants that I get every month on training gear because I'm so into it. Started looking for a steel shaker, couldn't find one and decided to start a business and start selling them. I just, mistake number one made in all e-coms, people assume their own preference goes for the whole market. But I, I assumed my own preference where Steve Shaker would go for it. That started my journey. And then it just escalated from there, to be honest. Kept building that, started something else, went to uni, had that business, got to meet Ben. And then I guess I've just always been into to e-com ever since. It, the other projects came along the way. But yeah, that I think was... The, the first business that was in the fitness industry and also one of the main reasons why we today are running two activewear and athleisure brands as well. So I think it kind of came from there.
2: Yeah. My journey is a tiny little bit different. I started my first business when I was 15, 16, I think. And it was actually, I was a photographer, right? Crazy margins. Got my first DSLR camera, met a mate who was like a pretty hip dude. And we started doing a lot of club photography. We got the free drinks with free entries. It was the shit. And then from that, imagine the margins also. And from that, we started doing concerts and festivals and like fashion week, editorials. All mates to working in restaurants and like at the bars. And we were like invoicing these big companies. We had zero clue what we were doing to begin with. And this was pre-Instagram, pre-Instagram, pre-YouTube tutorials. So everything was quite secretive. So we had our edits and styles. These days, it's a bit different. But yeah, Ecom was actually through Krusha when we studied together. But all that photography stuff is pretty useful now.
1: Yeah. That's always started out as well. I mean, Ben and I started talking very early on because Ben first thing Ben mentioned was like, I heard you're running your own business while well, we were at uni. And we were talking a bit about that. And then I needed some help with photography. And Ben got some insights into what I was doing. And he helped me out with some product photos. So even before we even thought we would be working together at some point, our skills were overlapping already.
0: All right. So you guys met at uni then. And how many years ago was this? This is 2015. September.
2: Six years ago, yeah. For four uh, semester.
0: Nice. And it's been a lucrative partnership so far, from, from what I understand. So
2: how did you spark the idea of working together?
1: Where did it come from, Ben?
2: Christian and I mean, actually never really hung out so much in school. He had his own mates, his own mates. But we always kind of chatted like between classes. Most people always had these ideas of the classic corporate job kind of uh, vibe going on. And I guess Christian was a little bit different. You know, he's the only one in class with all little tattoos. I was trying to find myself and not kind of find my own identity. And uh, I guess it became quite natural because after school, or during school, actually, we applied for the same jobs. We both got, we were working at Facebook and we lived together, hung out together like 24-7. And like, you're always popping ideas and ideas are plentiful. But I guess it's execution. That's you put your money where your mouth is. And uh, yeah, we just started like doing built on like just existing business, playing around with that. And it just seemed there was no, there was never really any decision. Like, oh, we're going to work together. It's just like, oh yeah, we get along. Hang out with it together. Now, we have similar backgrounds, but then like now it's actually quite interesting because we have pretty similar sets, but quite different as well. Our tasks are actually extremely different and that's complementary.
1: Ben is more long term, I'm more short term, mid term. Ben is better at having patience, understanding long term value of customer support routines. I get frustrated easily. We're different in that sense. We complement each other that way. But Ben, I don't know if you remember. I remembered it just now. We started Freight of Sweden. We started an umbrella company while we were at uni. That is true. true. It was actually one year in, I think. Ben's frustration, like we were chatting quite a bit and Ben was in this group of like straight A students who were kicking ass in every course. And you guys were, I think you came second in the Holt Prize or something, like a massive competition. And they were creating so much value in this, correct me if I'm wrong, building this nonprofit kind of organization in this. And they were getting so far and talking to the right people and you really build something. But then at some point you get to where like being inspirational is super cool. Having positive impact is super cool, but nothing is fun if you're broke. So it would be nice to put all this effort into something where you could make some money as well. We were discussing it that way. So we kind of created this umbrella company. We tried to. It's not an umbrella structure company. It was literally a brand that we were going to produce high-end umbrellas.
2: Yeah, it was was high-end umbrellas. Scandinavian vibes, like cool prints in the inside, like premium influence from the British um, gentleman's umbrella. Yeah. It was a bit difficult. Umbrellas are obviously large, but also mechanical stuff has uh, issues. And and you sold that uh, online? No, this one actually never took off. No. We had so many umbrella samples. it's insane. I could never get my hand on a good product. So like, we never really got the product in place. And then that kind of shifted to something else. (laughs) It's taking this time.
1: Yeah, it's difficult. We realized if you want to get to the quality we want, and we want to sell it for like a thousand, but then it's going to cost 1,500 to produce it. Swedish corners, that is. So there would be no margins. But the umbrella company became a vegan wallet company which then became the Instagram of Nine Pine, which everything has its evolution.
0: Yeah, so Nine Pine is, of course, uh, your big hit that you're running right now. That's your big e-com brand. So tell me about Nine Pine specifically and how you started the brand and and what it stands for.
2: Look, I mean, Nine Pine, it kind of evolved during our time. We started talking, you know, when we were both working on Facebook. And for both Kusha and I are quite inner looking kind of people in terms of like our thoughts in life, philosophical in, in some ways, but also we are quite into fitness. Kusha comes from a martial arts background. I come from a competitive swimming background and I was doing a little bit of CrossFit in, in Dublin. Now I'm swim running. Kusha has a heavy gym background. So naturally it's, that's where our passions are really. And at the same point, the market is growing there. So it was quite natural for us to look towards that. I mean, Christian and I have also looked at trying to work on these extremely innovative, kind of destructive, kind of you know startup ideas as well. But our time at Facebook really taught me, at least, that a lot of these are just smoke and mirrors that kind of get the funding and then kind of fizzle out and die. Whereas we saw a lot of these kind of just more like more standard, oh, standard, standard. But even in a parallel, you can always find in different niches and. If you look at it from a business perspective, if you do a a Porter's Five Forces kind of analysis on apparel and e-commerce, it's actually quite tough. And that's something else I learned at Facebook, that you can't really just apply these business school frameworks because the execution part is crucial. I mean, someone else can create a a clone of our company right now, but they may not get the same results. So it was quite scary that, I mean, on like the plan, like it would fail like a Porter's Five Forces in a school exam. But in reality, it's quite different. I guess we are trying to promote like activity like mindfulness and movement so kush and i are like we're always moving and uh, i guess people do live a quite sedentary life these days and anything we can do as minute as apparel can be or is maybe i don't know make a little difference so if you want to add something to that Kush? yeah no i think
1: you you covered pretty much everything the, the only thing i would add is obviously my dream has always been to run my own thing and we wanted to build something where we could be free where we could work from anywhere we have Wi-Fi. at some point, Ben might want to go back to Australia. Like the, the only thing that hinders us from being here and there is having time zones that overlap enough for Ben and I to collaborate because we outsourced it to third party logistics from the start. So like the vision of the brand on one hand, but we also need to create some sort of business that allows us to, automate what is not in line with what we want to spend our days doing to outsource stuff that is not outsourcing the core value of our business or core components of our business so we can still build what we have the vision of and at the same time being like okay we're two male founders we're selling activewear for women so pretty much any viewer could be like what they're saying is bullshit they're just going after demand and producing stuff because they want to make money but the truth is still like this was based off of experience from running many other e-coms that we decided not to continue because they weren't scaling fast enough or they weren't profitable enough. We knew from my previous company and and just from working with clients that there are recipes, there are certain ways that you can scale profitably from the start. So we started Nine point towards Women. Obviously, every single month, we're talking about expanding and going towards men. So we have this big activewear brand that we can wrap ourselves and stuff as well, while at the same time, Our biggest struggle with Nine Pine being we can't keep stuff in stock because we keep selling out. So restocking our current stuff always, you know, almost always wins when it comes to should we launch this new thing or should we restock what we keep selling out of. So obviously there is a long term brand vision that goes a bit beyond what we're currently doing. While at the same time, we really don't want to become this hashtag boss lady, hashtag, you know, flower power kind of vibe like that. It's just not what we're into.
2: Yeah, we were like considering like starting a men's brand from the beginning, but if you look at e-commerce trends it's just macro trends, right? So like, it doesn't make sense from a financial point of view. It's much, it's much more difficult. It's easier to kind of start with selling to where the market is and then kind of uh, slowly transitioning. And that's what we've done. And we've been lucky enough to be able to do it now, like two years later. But I mean, it's, it's a mix of passion, macro trends, micro trends also, you gotta play it smart. Cause I mean, too many businesses are started purely from passion, which is fantastic but you need know, a little bit more than just passion and like personal biases.
1: And they go hand in hand. If it's hardcore passion, you're more likely to involve your personal biases to the extent where you're not listening to the market.
0: That's a very, very interesting point. Yeah, so just to kind of continue on that, how did you do all the product research and the product design? As you said, you guys are two males and you're creating this act leisure brand for women. So how did that work and sourcing the material and everything?
2: Yeah. I mean, you learn, you learn a lot. And this is the one thing, a uh, difference between like just going, uh, starting a, like a tech company where we have zero tech skills generally. And parallel is a it's physical, right? So you can touch, you learn, you measure anything you can learn, any job, any skill you can learn if you just spend time on it. So I spent time, I have family, I have Chinese background, I have family in the textiles business. My mom was a seamstress. I guess your mom also has quite a lot of textile background, Kusha. And look, it's not you know, a rocket science. You make prototypes, you test different materials. You do iterations, you test them on uh, people. You have to get feedback of course, but feedback, small sample size is always, always a, an issue and you keep, you keep iterating. But Like most of our products we have are V1s that now like in, in our real life, it's like a V like 22 and we're like for more small details from, from, what drawstrings we use, what materials we use, we, we test a lot. So, I mean, kind of looking at design thinking as a methodology, uh, we learned that at school and we actually do apply a very similar kind of concept of design thinking into our product design and since it is like physical materials it is much easier to make prototypes Uh, and we can send to our suppliers and they can make samples we get them we keep changing and that's how it evolves so it's never really static but yeah we learn as we do and my whole shelf is full of fabric now didn't go to design school but design isn't just reserved for design school students i don't think
1: no it's we have so many tools at our disposal so many and so many amazing people and i think Just being able to have like people around us, it could have been girlfriends, it could have been friends and friends, friends and friends, girlfriends, sister, mother, just people. We are forced to make decisions and try to stay unbiased, right? So we give them to as many as we can. We get feedback, which is way more close to market feedback, because if Ben and I were to, you know, test these and base it off of our own preference, then once again, we have a very high risk of it not fitting a certain body type.
2: We do test them as well, though ourselves but that's nice. more that's
1: more for the durability of the fabric the seams and that kind of stuff right you would never test how tight they are on your hips on your. Like,
2: for example my fiance she's into fitness she's a yoga instructor uh she practices yoga every day and yeah so she like she is my test really all the time so you know like we have to navigate like her personal biases as well of course but uh, that's how it is it's, it's quite organic and it's quite uh grassroots that's
0: cool and what was your first product that you started selling
2: we actually had, like, we actually had- Five, a collect- right?
0: Five products, six products, something like that.
2: We, we had, like, very little know-how, I would say, then. And we had, you know, our colleague, like, Anna, like, helped us, like, immensely in, in the beginning, right? Getting her feedback. Our colleague, Anna, like, she's super into CrossFit, like, the fittest person to, like, know. And- she's an overall
1: superstar as well. Like, someone who's yeah. so much fun to work with who is not scared to give honest feedback, know, like, really wants- the best for you so she gives all the you know details that she believes could help you improve the product like the kind of person who wants you to win you know big shout yeah. out anna
2: big shout out AK. and uh, yeah so like she helped us out in the evenings like just testing stuff we like like i was honestly quite clueless for, like comparing me then like you know two and a half years ago now like it's, it's quite a journey
1: yeah but obviously working with the right factories there are many factories now who are like have these white label products and and i know there are a lot of companies clients that we work with at facebook who are just taking these white label products they're putting their logos on them and they're shooting some ads and putting them on instagram stories and it's working right so that's that's obviously a way to do it they have a lot of sizing data and stuff but we from the start we were like we're not going to do this we want to create something unique you know and we also we're very confident in our ability to to improve stuff that's where the fun is right that's why we have a product, our best-selling legging right now, uh, and it has been for a while. It's called the Sweatheart 2.0. Truth is, it's not a 2.0. It's like version God knows what. Yeah.
2: And yeah, exactly.
0: Cool. And to kind of build on that, after you created the product, what was the next step after that?
2: Yeah. After the product, you need a website and you need material. You need like photos for the products, for the website, for the social, you need you know, ad material. And the website was quite... Yeah, it was quite tough in the beginning. Like we built our first website on WordPress, WooCommerce, because it's cheaper in the beginning. Well, there's no like kind of cost like Shopify as an example. And that was quite tricky. We did it. The website would crash here and there. And of course, like, like product photos and stuff, that's me and Krisha organized that internally ourselves. So then
1: being a photographer, we didn't have to spend money getting a photographer in. We rented a studio somewhere in, in Ireland. It's pretty cheap, pretty small, but it was good enough to get started with. But yeah, I think really like because we are a business that we knew that we were going to build from the start, we were going to scale on, on social media platforms and digital advertising. It's very important that you have something that looks attractive enough from the start so that you're driving traffic profitably from the start. Otherwise, you're just not going to build. That's, that's like the accumulated experiences. That's everything we had learned so far. We were not going to build something and see if it works, we're going to scale. We had the proof of concept. We were fully confident in our ability to do it. So we were like, we're building it for scale from the start. We need a logistics infrastructure in place. Like all all of that kind of admin needs to be in place. The, The company needs to be registered XYZ. When that is in place, we need somewhere where we're not, you know, using our money to drive traffic to learn because we know at least roughly this will impact conversions. This will impact conversions. Making sure you really have good product pictures, you really have a good size guide so that people don't refrain from buying because they're worried about what size will fit them etc so just getting all of these potential hinders out the way for a conversion to happen we already payment had a pricing strategy in place because payment
2: know uh, op- payment options payment like, options
1: localizing and exactly you know like just people around us who wanted us to succeed who well, also helped us understand you know the importance of offering Klarna in the scandinavian markets for example and localizing where we could localize just Making sure we are set up to sell our first batch, not at break even, but with a little bit of a profit so that we could bring in a larger quantity for the next batch.
0: And, and talking about break even, how much starting capital would you say you you had to invest in the beginning? So,
1: in the beginning of the project, I mean, the first the first one that I did start now, that one took way longer. But that one, when we brought in leggings the first time, we bought a batch for, I think, 20,000 kroner. So, there's not a massive cost. It's like, that's about 2,000 euros, even less. So it's, it's not a massive cost to get started, but with this one, it was more like we weren't chasing proof of concept. We were like, this was going to work. We knew that it was going to work. And we knew that you could in certain markets with a certain type of ad, um, you could push profitably from day one, if you have a nice enough website. So we weren't really worried about that. It was more like, how do we make sure we get enough product so we can pace for the days we need until the next batch arrives now. We did have some other friends who were running e-coms and we knew some others who, who were keen on, you know, we were thinking about people who were running e that didn't have their own brands, who were building a brand, et cetera. So we started talking to some people that we knew and we have two others that joined us in building this company. So they really believed in our ability. We had worked with them before. So they came in, I, honestly, I can't really remember what it was, but I think they, they chipped in something like $30,000 or so more in the, in the shape of a loan, we got some equity. And then we use that money to buy in the first batch. And in combination with that, because they were already running some other e-coms. For example, they had a really good relationship with Klarna. So on WordPress, when we wanted Klarna, we could you know, piggyback on their deal and get you know, just these. We could get some economies of scale from the start, despite having zero scale, which is, it's been a nice help. It's really nice. Is it possible to do without it? Absolutely. Can you use a little bit of your savings and build it? absolutely. However, if you're going to go organically from investing 2000 euros and buying a small batch of 200 or 100 or 300 products, whatever, then it's going to take you some time until you start you know, building up that working capital. You need to continuously have more products in production and get to scale.
0: Great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense. So well done. So from what I can understand that you guys built for the long term and when it, when it comes to to branding, and, and differentiation and standing out in the marketplace uh, since you are selling leggings among other things that, as you said, there's a lot of competition out there. How are you thinking when it comes to your brand story and making sure that your brand will be the brand that uh, your customers want to choose and that they want to associate themselves with?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. So like, I think if we take a step back before the brand, I guess before you even have the possibility to build a brand, you need to have a, a functioning business. And product, right, and a good product market fit. So, like, we it's got, it's gone through phases. So in the beginning, right, so Kush and I didn't really have like the clearest brand kind of vision. I would say, just completely frank, we had like we will we'll just testing the waters. We're very keen to get a good product market fit first. We get a product that's and the quality that we want has the right fit that leads to higher lifetime value and repeat purchase to, to kind of build the business because without the business flowing, you have no brand. That's just, that's the truth. And like maybe this is just a really business. We knew
1: this from our clients as well, right? We've, we've yeah. seen this so many times. If you have healthy repeat purchase, that can fund your expansion to acquire new customers.
2: Exactly. And there's, there's like, Kush like and I have all these crazy brand ideas, but you need to fund it somehow. And this could be maybe a very business school thing but that's that, that's how we run the business i have this crazy idea for the to be like hey ben like we have to prioritize this i'm like okay it makes like, logical sense now as you said like like our, the, our market is there's no blue ocean there's plenty of competition low barriers to entry as we said fa- fails port of five forces however i think at least in our, in our markets one, one thing that's interesting there is competition don't get me wrong but you can outperform competition you have the dinosaurs traditional retails who haven't really yeah they've made they have big budgets and moved to digital but like it's so spread thin think of the big you know sporting brands and then you think of other big brands big in the us they don't have a warehouse logistical system in europe they can't ship easily they focus on the big markets and then you know leaving other markets kind of forgotten so you have you can you can kind of discount this and then you have like people playing the same market and Look, even in the Nordics and Europe, where we play, there's plenty of competition. But uh, we're trying to differentiate ourselves with our visual imagery. It's extremely clean, premium. We hope and we plan for. We try to avoid cliches. Everything is quite neutral, generally. We don't push ourselves as like super Scandinavian. Like we don't really push that message. But there is an like definitely an influence of if you look at like how Cush and I just like what we wear all the time is extremely neutral tones and okay. you get black gray gray when the sun is out for example you wear white sometimes Cush but like from, a, from an imagery point of view like Kush and I are quite fashion interested personally as well so there is a little influence of that so we're not all like in the woods like very Swedish yeah we're in the forest going for a high kind of vibe we like we're urban but we also like nature, but it's clean, minimal.
1: Yeah. I think one thing to add here is at least what I've learned is you don't have to have the world's clearest image of the brand, but it needs to be pretty clear. Like you need you need some sort of idea. Like we have this internal brand guide that we update sometimes where we're like, these are our colors. These are, we stick to a one font. We make sure that we are consistent with everything from our tone of voice to the graphic profile at every single touch point, every touch point. It should be consistent. You should be able to look at our Instagram story. You should be able to look at our Instagram feed. You should be able to look at the mood part of our website. And then you should be able to look at the third email you get in an abandoned cart automated email sequence that reminds you that we plant trees per order and the design should there should be some sort of red thread. And we, we realize this through being like, I don't know, I think, I think we have quite a lot of visions. We think so many times each day. We have talked to each other three, four times each day throughout the day, every single day of the week. Many times about the idea, the vision, the brand, the image, what would be cool. The thing is when you sit and speculate and you think what would be cool and you have the creative power to create it, if you're not consistent with it, it's just gonna, it's, it's never gonna leave our discussion, it just sticks between me and Ben and we develop this super advanced view of what Nine Pine is and no one on the market agrees because we haven't been clear in communicating it. So it's really gotten to a point where it's like, look, we have these crazy ideas, what is realistic? Like what can we do across multiple touch points or enough touch points that have enough impressions so that we over time, midterm or long term or whatever we're trying to achieve, we're kind of seen as this by the bulk of, of the market that goes hand in hand with everything, man. like every touch point, like we said, through email and stuff, but the main touch points, which could be like paid advertising, for example, if people are seeing our videos twice a day average, and we have a video that performs really well in terms of selling, but we feel that it's off brand, then we'll have to either turn it off for the sake of the brand long term maybe create a more on-brand version of the same, or we have to be happy enough with the other ads being on-brand and living with this one performing because the money that that one generates can allow us to do some other activity to save the brand image that that one destroyed. Like it's all these balances and we're trying to balance, you know, I think we could be selling more if we decided to sell out brand-wise. We could be doing discounts and selling a ton more, but not building the same thing, for example. Or we could be using ads that we feel are super off-brand, but are way more towards coupon hunting people and using other flashy
2: colors and stuff it's just not what we're trying to build this is actually really interesting so yeah because it's short-term versus long-term definitely short-term sales versus long-term costs. you get the sales in the beginning but like that will deteriorate the brand long-term and our perspective of branding comes from it's quite theoretical right why brands grow was a book coming remember the author he's an australian researcher but branding in his perspective is all about reach and frequency how many people you reach and how often you, you reach them with the same message. If you pump the same kind of messaging or graphic profile enough times, people will interpret that. Uh, and this is, comes into what Kusher is, right? So like when we worked with traditional retail brands, the fashion houses in Sweden, the big names, it was quite interesting to see how the traditional setup of an organization was that you had the branding team and then you had the sales performance team, marketing team. It was separate, right? But in our experience in the digital world, you can't really have that separation because as Kusha says, every touch point is a branding opportunity. So the idea of the funnel as branding first and then like direct response conversion is a little bit like outdated in that sense, because you can have a top of funnel kind of prospecting traditional branding, but also convert at the same time. So the funnel has really kind of shrunk. So like, even if it's a paid ad, it is also branding in our point of view. Any touch point that has impressions and frequency is an opportunity. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it
1: becomes the result of pretty simple decision-making sometimes, right? It could be as simple as like, look, we decide to only use this font. end of story. That's a massive thing for a brand who doesn't have that in place. We decide to use these three colors only. This is our light color, this is our dark color, this is the clean color. That's it, nothing else. Massive decision for someone who's not building their brand properly, for example.
0: Right. And also, as you were building your brand, did you think about or look at any type of communities uh, that you were trying to tap into?
1: I've been thinking, I mean, continuously thinking about this, but I think the the answer is no from the start. We know, obviously, when you're building this sort of business that is focused on active activewear or, athlete, or at least like a year and a half, two years ago, it was a bit different, I think it's very evident now that we're moving towards a world where it's more the formal and informal or athleisure activewear active wear slash lifestyle clothing slash formal is the lines are blurred now right and, and i don't think it's just because you i was wearing hoodies when i was working at facebook it's more I, I guess it's becoming more socially accepted to have the active part of your lifestyle more in like you're wearing leggings to brunch absolutely fine you're wearing joggers to brunch absolutely fine you're sitting in your zoo meeting in your uh, not necessarily pajamas but sweatshirt it's fine so That's today. But two years ago, I don't think we were looking at this is the community. These are the people that we want to target. We knew and obviously one of the reasons why you could start selling leggings and be profitable from day one was because people who buy leggings own a lot of leggings. Like there's a lot of competition. There's also a lot of demand. While at the same time, we knew that What was going to drive our sales is our advertising on Facebook and Instagram. That's the way we started. We knew we were going to get repeat purchase if we have good products, et cetera, et cetera. You can add other platforms, but Snapchat, Pixel, not powerful enough. TikTok wasn't even in the picture. YouTube for performance, it's only an attribution question in in my head. Like you can't do smart shopping from scratch because no one knows you either. It's going to be Facebook, Instagram. And Ben and I, we often come back to, we have this idea, we have this vision, but we remember without any money, there's no brand to build either. Without any money, you can't advertise. If you're not profitable, you can't scale. If you can't scale, there's no one to see your brand. You can build the nicest thing in the world, but you want to build it for 44 people. So we didn't proactively target any group or click because we knew that in the beginning to build enough scale, to build enough money to start doing the stuff that costs, the stuff that's fun with the brand, we would have to be okay with whoever the Facebook and Instagram Gods, no, but the algorithm decided is interested in what we have built. And if we look at the demographics, and I'm just making this up, but all of a sudden we see that, oh, we're selling to 42 year old women and up in small towns, and that is not the brand we want to build. The problem is not that we're selling to them. I don't, it's not like their money is worth less. It's just if I want to build a brand for someone who's 25 and urban, then it's probably the look of my brand. It's probably the look of my ads or the look of my website. And we're kind of, as we've gone along, have been like, okay, if we want to target more of these people because they're younger, maybe it hurts more to pay 80 euros for a pair of leggings from a brand they kind of know or that doesn't have much recognition. What do we have to do? Is the key to start wearing Gucci shoes in our ads? So they start associating us with more premium brands. Is that how you do it? Just all of these, like doing this afterwards, I think, is easier because it's much much easier to sit and say this is the group or the click that we want to target we can afford to acquire customers there rather than doing it from the start and realizing it's not the most lucrative way to to get going with their business
2: same thing exact same thing with countries right where yep. like we don't mind where we sell as long as logistics and our shipping contracts are, are like okay but like working with other companies it was always like oh yeah we're going to launch denmark denmark <laughs> we're gonna have a project we're gonna we have a date q4 in one year's time i mean okay like you don't really need that, that much planning you just press play and stuff will you know screw up and you, you fix on as you go better done than perfect as they say yeah
1: better done than perfect you can localize denmark if you see potential but if you spend a year planning for denmark and you do it and it flops
0: waste your time <laughs> so what are your biggest markets right now
1: I mean, we're we're pretty spread out across Europe. We're set, I think in November last year, we sold to fifty countries, like yeah. forty-eight something countries. Now we're more like stable countries that we continuously sell to each and every month. Is maybe like twenty-four, twenty-five countries. Obviously, being in Sweden ourselves, we do sell quite a bit in Sweden.
2: We have the Nordics, uh, were quite popular in Central Europe, the Benelux areas. We had like UK was a huge one pre-Brexit. Of course, now that like, you have all the logistical issues there. So we're focused mainly on Europe and like it's purely just all and it's surrounding Europe, just purely due to logistical reasons. I mean, tax yeah. laws and everything is it's real counting.
1: But we, we have everything in place and we're super ready to test other markets as well. Like Ben says, it's more of a logistical issue for one and even if we did have the logistics in place we we're selling out anyway like that's our biggest issue here we're saying no to very attractive partners and affiliate networks and premium resellers in strong markets because we can barely keep stuff in stock ourselves
0: and to get to the point that you guys are now what have been your biggest obstacles and how did you overcome them
2: i think one of the biggest like challenges really is it was actually the switch from like uh, corporate life to to this kind of entrepreneurship life yeah you you get flexibility and that's super rewarding and you do something that's rewarding all the time you know all the stuff people say it's good about but there's also a burden right the burden of that everything you do um, has extreme real impact on the bottom line if i wake up now and i edit this video and launch it and could and can go go crazy that changes revenue and that changes the outcome of our lives as an example that's just one thing like it's 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 really like it's always on that's one thing and the second thing is actually one of the biggest challenges that i had to deal with was i really connected my identity to the brand in the beginning i make the designs we do all the hard work but then sometimes not everyone loves it and like especially customers can be harsh and you do realize that the negativity is actually from a very small proportion of people who are just the loudest but it's it's very i still do it feels like personal attacks sometimes just say it's a bad review or unhappy customer. And even though if you have like, just say you have 25 star reviews and you have that one one star and they're super unhappy. It was really hard. Like I just totally forgot about those good reviews. But that one negative review, it just really ate me up. And I think that's one of the pitfalls. And is maybe a bit more life focused, but not identifying yourself with your job or anything you build, like this kind of facade that people create. Oh, I am, I'm a tech guy working here. Cause if you lose that, it's quite difficult like from a mental state. So for me, I don't see myself as a guy who runs business or starts whatever. I'm bent. I just so happen to like do this as my, my kind of living and my passion. But yeah, like just kind of disconnect a little bit.
1: I can really relate. I can relate. But at the same time, I had the same, you know, the issue of taking things personally. I think every entrepreneur goes through. The thing is, I got this very early because I started an e-com early. For me, it was the same thing, right? Especially when you start your own brand and you're running customer support. And I was doing steel protein shakers, which was a pretty new thing. And shakers leak. They're famous for leaking, like infamous for leaking. So um, you, you take stuff very personally. The good news or on the flip side, you take the success very personally as well. So it's very rewarding to see the impact that you have. But yeah, there, there's two sides to that coin. I think that, that is definitely one. I think with Nine Pine, one of the biggest learning slash kind of a continuous road bump that just came there all the time. And I had to remind myself, and this is one of the best things about working with Ben, is being rational in your decision making. Like I'm, I, I find myself very often affected by my biases. And because I love a product, I, I can sit and create this idea for three days in my head that we got to restock this product. This product is so popular. We really have to restock this product. And it, it could be the simplest thing. It could be just because my mom loves that product and that one size and one color that my mom has, which no one else buys, is out of stock. So in my head, I've created this, you know, we have to restock this. And that's an extreme example. What I'm trying to get to is I've learned to be more rational in my decision-making to to use more data in my decision-making because it's harder than you think when you feel so personally attached to a brand. It's the same thing with Ben, right? One out of 20 reviews, what's that, 5%? But it's not like 5% of the customers have to be unhappy because of that. It's one person. It's not stat sick. So I think being rational in your decision-making and trying to stay unaffected by your biases, especially coming from a sales background where I've found myself sometimes trying to convince someone of something that is not necessarily exactly that way or exactly true. And I start believing in it
2: myself. He's very good at selling. I I get sold. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. I so like, so
1: sometimes I, I could even find myself, like I, I can convince Ben about something and Ben's like, okay, if, if that's the way you think it is, then let's do it. And then just because Ben has agreed, I calm down and I look at the numbers and I'm like, "My oh, shit, my proposal doesn't make sense whatsoever. So that's something I've really been struggling with and I'm trying to balance. What do I actually want? Do I want to launch this in military green just because it matches my watch? Or do I want to restock the black because that's going to get us to our revenue target faster? You have to zoom out very often and not get defensive because your business partner disagrees about something that's aligned with your preference.
2: So to add on to this, like, I think one of the misconceptions at the beginning was like, oh, this is a side business. Oh, like people think we're just doing drop shipping. It's so easy. It's not easy. I mean... Okay. Maybe from a technical point of view, we're not doing biotech or anything. That's pretty complicated. But a business in its essence, you have product, you have a, a consumer, a, a buyer, and you use the sales process. It's a pretty simple process. That's what business is. But I think what people kind of misconceive, especially like these business students who always want to work with strategy is there's operations as well. I mean, the whole flow of the processes from purchasing to transport freight, all that kind of stuff, return processes, it's a lot of work. And like Christian, like, I wouldn't lie and say this was easy. It was an easy process. It takes grit. Like, I don't want to say how many hours I, mean, I work, but, like, it's nonstop. I was a, definitely offended when people were saying, like, oh, how's your side business going? This ain't no side business. This ain't no, no. side business. This ain't no side
1: business. When people contact you, it's flattering. It's nice, too, when they're, like, I'm, I'm considering setting up something on the side as well. And I'm, like, you know, and you get so offended. You want to stay nice and everything. But I, I don't know anyone who... who is working and has worked as much as Ben and I do. I don't know anyone. And yeah, so it's yeah hard not to be offended.
0: <laughs> so what advice would you give to someone looking to get started since you guys have all these years of experience as far as mindset?
1: Make sure you're about that life because it's a lot of work. And if you don't think it's really for you, it's easy to say I'm down to put in the work because I'm doing it for myself. I don't even care if my hourly wage goes down because I'm doing it. I'm building it for myself. You still have to put in the work. You still have to do it. And it's not like because the type of business model sounds simple because you zoom out, it doesn't mean it's free from intellectual challenges. It's the other way around because the simpler it is, the lower the barrier to entry. You're competing with a lot of people that can have weird edges. Like they could have an edge on you and something that you just can't achieve because you don't have the skill set in-house, or it's not worth investing in that kind of whatever USP they have. So if there's one piece of advice I would give, especially if it's like, if you know people who are running businesses and you want to ask for advice and you want to talk to them, absolutely talk to them and get help. But make sure you're really about it. It's like, don't go out there and ask for advice and then they don't go start anything. You're sitting here like, I'm doing two, three meetings a week, sharing my tips and they're not doing anything because they realize it's not a one hour a day thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of yeah. people in school at work, like everyone had all these great business ideas. It's all about business ideas. Oh, like ideas like as i, I said before like it, it's really easy to come with ideas it's not the ideas that makes the business right you have to pivot all the time now it's i think the hard part is actually the committing to the, to the work the commitment part i don't, I don't recommend people just like quitting a job with no plan like no savings that's irresponsible i would say in that sense i mean if you have to if, if that's you know if that's the only thing you can do, then go for it but i think you can do quite a lot if you have a stable job now maybe you can figure out evenings or your weekend and really build this because it, it is you know there are financial challenges of course like doing your own business it's not the same as working in a, in a corporation of course so that part do not underestimate that because the, st- the stress of trying to create revenue and have profit and, and have cash flow it is super challenging um, while keeping brand integrity while keeping yeah. brand integrity you have to pay you have to you have to survive yourself so it's in the beginning, it's way less comfortable than a corporate job where you can switch off and the salary comes, you don't have to think about it, it will come. We have to check the bank accounts, that kind of vibe. So uh, there are a lot of things, but it's it's definitely rewarding. Because I mean, like if you want to one day, um, you know, we're doing a photo shoot, editing videos, I'm designing product, talking to our partners with a return system, we're fixing a web, like it's just like complete everything we do, which is I think quite rare in any kind of defined job.
1: The, I get the question from my friends all the time. I'm like, no, I have to work. I have to do this. And they're like, what do you do? Like, what? I don't get it. What is it that you do? You've outsourced logistics. Someone else is picking and packing for you. What is it that you do? The question is so strange to us that every single time my answer is like, look, Ben and I, we do everything. Like anything you can come up with, we do everything apart from picking it off the shelf and putting it in the bag. Anything else that you can come up with. And when we're done doing all of that, that's when we spend the time thinking about taking it to the next level, developing the next thing, everything we do. So yeah, just to to finish up on on your question, Malik, I think the, the biggest tip is really, once again, like make sure you're willing to put in the work, make sure you're willing to put in the time and make sure that this is what you truly believe is gonna be the most rewarding and fun thing for you because it's a sacrifice you make. You're gonna have to dedicate yourself I'm personally struggling every single day because there's nothing that I'd rather spend my time doing. It's really weird. But like I come into periods where I have to force myself to go to the gym, not because I don't want to go to the gym, but because I'd rather work on something that is going to take my time to the next level at this point in time, going with your coffee to the laptop every single morning at nine or 8 a.m. Saying like, I'm just going to check this thing quickly and then I'm going to go have breakfast and then it's 3 p.m. You haven't left the laptop yet it happens to me four times a week so it's like you have to be about it otherwise it's just not going to be
2: worth it yeah and i guess uh, just to finish up on that is uh, don't pursue this life just because you think society or it looks good or there's prestige or it's kind of like how people move to become consultants or bankers because there is a societal perspective that's what you should do and that's the right thing to do and that's success i don't think either of us are kind of approaching in that sense but i think that can be a a super danger if that's what's motivating you this kind of extrinsic external kind of view because uh, it's it's tough and uh, that kind of motivation and i think will get you there
0: great this is going to be one of my last uh, questions it has been an amazing conversation so far i just want to hear from you guys uh, since you have tremendous of experience from working inside of facebook uh, and also uh, working on your own businesses where do you see the future of e-commerce going that's a good
1: one you mean in terms of how consumers buy like what e-commerce will look like?
2: Yes. From well, my b- point of view, when we started this business, e-commerce in many countries was still 10% of all retail transactions. I think in, in Sweden, maybe it was, it was like 20%, but it was still twenty eighty. It's It was, I don't know the exact numbers now, but in many countries, of course, we've seen with the pandemic, the acceleration of e-commerce. But just because we thought everyone bought online didn't mean everyone else bought online. I mean, when we're at Facebook, the, the stats were like 10% of purchases were e-commerce 90 brick and mortar like it's just unfathomable i mean even just that from a macro trend that i mean obviously that's going to go down and it is going down but even that it sounds so simple but it is a huge thing and then in terms of what i think of e-commerce look you have these big players you have the, you have the big conglomerate types who, who purely are e-coms and they they focus, they kind of do a cost cutting methodology of like, since they have great shipping rates, super generous return policies, and they can absorb the costs and they suck in and they kind of, they have bargaining power. And then you see them starting to have white, their own brands. And then you see in their collections, they kind of put all their brands on top and then that kind of play, that's like an Amazon play, right? In China, for example, in, in Asia, like you have these Alibaba or like these kind of Amazon type kind of companies who like kind of own e-commerce. I really hope that doesn't become the case. There's always a risk because you have the convenience, right? But that's why it's a little bit different depending on the you know, industry, right? So like, if you look at Amazon as an example, like, yeah, gadgets and stuff, that's quite common people go there. But for fashion or like uh, apparel, sense, it, you don't really go there for that. So hopefully that's says But I mean, e-commerce from a macro perspective is just going to grow. And so are the players that people kind of realize that what, you know, the opportunities are. Uh, yeah go Rush, if you want to call it. don't want to predict anything, but I think it, it's a wave that we're riding.
1: I think so too. And I think there's, I mean, midterm, it depends on how you define long-term, right? But midterm, at least, I think this trend of these bigger marketplace style platforms is going to continue for a while. We see like Ozone, massive in Russia, do they have 2 million unique visitors a day, like Taobao, Tmall in, in Asia or in China. And then you got, Amazon here, which is literally like stores selling their stuff on Amazon and Amazon taking a cut because you can get a little bit of Amazon's economies of scale into your business and more and more e-coms just outsourcing to third-party logistics instead of setting up their own warehouses because they want to take part in, in the contracts that they've negotiated because they have bulk. So you're kind of getting economies of scale, even though you're a small business for the first time. And I think this is going to continue. I think more e-coms are going to try to approach expansion like we are. We can launch in a new country tomorrow if we feel like it, as long as we can ship there, test the market before we start localizing or doing any proactive marketing efforts there. So, so I think, I don't necessarily think these massive companies are going to go away the other way around, but I think more companies are going to try to become like them. I know that TikTok is working very closely with Shopify of creating some sort of affiliate network from their creators. So it's almost like a hybrid of, you know, influencer marketing, like paid partnership with and Instagram shopping, but on TikTok. And I think there's so many platforms and partners like the ones that Ninepine are working with, for example, that it looks like you're buying from their very nice website, but the order is actually being created into our system and not there. So this kind of affiliate, and we wouldn't mind if the same thing happens where someone can turn their Instagram business profile into a shop an influencer that we're collaborating with, and they want to start selling our products there. Their customers have their cards saved in Instagram. They're buying the Nine Pie products straight from the Instagram. And the order is created in our system because we have the warehouse and the logistics infrastructure. I think that is going to grow massively. Like I I really, really think this sort of like widespread influencer slash affiliate style marketing is going to grow uh, in the future. And then we also have what is ecom growing at now? Twenty percent a year, while Nine Pine is growing. At, what do we do? We seven point five x our business from the first year to the second, and now we're on track to more than three xing our business in the second full year of business. So we're growing way faster than ecom is growing overall. But I think a lot of companies are like super happy, like we grew eighteen percent last year, and you look at ecom overall, and ecom grew twenty. They don't really <laughs> realize that they. They didn't really grow as fast as the industry. So I think it's growing super fast and the landscape is changing super fast. And for us who came up in the digital age, we're digital natives, we're very dependent on these platforms that allow digital advertising. For us, it's going to change even faster. We need to be on our toes. We need to keep you know adapting to this, but it's not a negative thing. I think it's a benefit. Like we're going to stay in the forefront because these traditional ones, we see them just year by year, their margins are just being cut.
2: If you want to add just one more like point to this, different perspective. There are many stakeholders in e-commerce, warehouse company, freight companies, transport companies, reverse logistics. This is coming at a sh- as a shock to a lot of these traditional industries, actually. I mean, if you, in Sweden, you look, you go like Black Friday time, you look at where you pick up packages, they're overwhelmed. And a lot of these traditional companies, DHL, for example, I mean, they're, tr- they're a traditional B2B company. I mean, B2C delivery is all, is actually quite new at, at this scale. Reverse logistics is also extremely new. I mean, looking at the behavior of people these days, like wardrobe shopping, returning half their baskets. Reverse logistics is extremely expensive that people don't realize. And then how you handle returns when like 30% of returns come back faulty and all this kind of stuff. there's, There's gonna be innovation that has to really fix that because there's so much waste. So there's all these kind of behind the scenes things that people do not kind of really see. Also like all the tech, all the integrations between systems, accounting softwares, they're all like tiny operational things, but they make a huge impact. And like sometimes Christian and I are like extremely like eager and we come from this again like move fast, move fast, move fast world. But the reality is many of our partners come from traditional companies and cannot move that fast. So we want to integrate with the systems into logistics, all this crazy, crazy stuff. Not possible. Yeah. Yeah. You want everyone to move at your pace,
1: but no, I'm hundred percent with you, Ben. I think sometimes, yeah, some parts of the industry is changing super fast, but there's certain like hygiene factors that need to be able to keep pace and follow. And if, look, if logistics can't cope, e coms going nowhere.
0: So true. Yeah. It has to get to people's doors. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. Please, before you leave, just let me know where can they find you and where can they find your brands, both Nine Pine and, and Nothing Something?
1: So Nine Pine, you can find at nine-pine.com. The dash is the reason why a lot of people say nine pine. We don't want the dash. It's just that nine pine.com was taken. <laughs> so it's nine pine.com for nine pine. Hopefully, in the near future, it will be nine pine.com. Uh, and nothing something is literally just nothings something.com.
2: Yeah. you me on LinkedIn if you want. At nine pine
1: on Instagram, just at nine pine. At nine pine official on TikTok. At nine pine fitness on Snapchat. What else do we have? At nothing something as well on Instagram.
0: Well, thank you so much, guys. This has been a fantastic conversation to have with you guys. And I hope to have it again uh, in a couple of years and, and see where the brands are uh, at that point. It's going to be super excited to see your growth.
1: Hopefully. Thank you so much, Malik.
0: Thank you for listening to the Brand Blueprints podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to leave us an honest review. And don't forget to subscribe to check out our next episode.